Warning, this program typically features respectful, nuanced, and well-informed commentary, strong language, obscure pop culture references, and spurious allegations. We know of new methods of attack. The Trojan horse, the fifth column, column, column. Well, I'm here with Van Latham. Van, I am delighted to be able to talk to you. Uh, Van uh, reached out to me after my recent appearance on Real Time and wanted to have a conversation. Van was um, formerly of TMZ, and now he hosts a renowned podcast at The Ringer called Higher Learning and uh, is working on a new book as well. Right, Van? Yeah, have a book, a uh, book coming out um, called Fat, Crazy, and Tired. It's okay. just, <laughs> it's just about, We're going to need some context for that. Right. Just kind of about how uh, my upbringing in South Baton Rouge, uh, Louisiana, how the environmental conditions kind of lead people to be all three of those things. And maybe some anic- some antidotes, not anecdotes, some antidotes to kind of living your life in that experience. Very cool. So when does that drop? Uh, that's probably not going to be until next year. Okay. Um, but, you know, uh, shout out to everybody over at, over at Hachette. And that's probably not going to be until next year. But, like, we're finishing up the last draft. We should probably have it in a little bit. And then the book's going to come out a little bit. Very later. cool. Very cool. Yeah. Um, how long have you been at The Ringer now? Uh, this is my first year with The Ringer. I was with TMZ for nine years. Um, and then I... Right after the Kanye thing, obviously, I was fielding offers from different parties who were interested. And Bill and I had started a dialogue back in 2018. So we knew Mm -hmm. that we would be working together. Uh, But, you know, when the TMZ thing ended, you know, they were right there. And so it was it's natural sports, pop culture, uh, politics, all of those things in one big ball. It's kind of what the ringer is. And that's kind of what I am. Can you can you give folks some context for how you got into sort of media and commentary and we were talking earlier i asked you if you considered yourself a journalist and you said no um i personally don't necessarily have very religious feelings about the word i don't think Mm -hmm. it's invested with all that much importance in and of itself um so i i would use the word to describe you but you told me you think of yourself as a commentator how did you how did you come to do that and what do you what's your purpose in this space what are you trying to accomplish I think journalists are, as far as my experience of having worked in a newsroom, I think someone who considers himself a journalist uh, is more about breaking news. I don't like breaking news. I don't. I, it, it was the least my least favorite part of working at TMZ was being in a race to get something first because there are all kinds of things that come with that territory, right? Yeah. I suppose, especially at a publication like TMZ, because you're doing a lot of stuff that's about people's personal lives, which I'm sure you could sometimes feel pretty torn about. Uh, Right. Actually, for the most part, very few people there would actually feel torn. Most people feel exactly how they feel, but their choices there are to be made. You know what I mean? So it's yeah. Mm -hmm. But uh, the reason why I would say commentator is because I feel like more that's more about translating culture from place to place. It's more about having conversations and creating art and engaging into conversations that allow people to sort of contextualize their experience uh, and their experience as it relates to greater American culture or world culture or whatever it be uh, in a more concise and clear way. And I might not be giving you uh, a new story, but I might take an existing story and help you view it in a different lens. And I think that's the difference 
as far as I'm concerned, between a journalist, the way I look at it at TMZ, a breaking news journalist, and a commentator. You and I have had a conversation before, mm-hmm. one, um, but it was sure. a really good conversation, probably one of my favorite conversations of the year. Um, it really and it, it, we talked about an hour and a half. We talked about a lot of the different themes in the Bill Maher conversation. And I'm interested in unpacking and exploring some of that stuff again. I suppose we mm-hmm. probably have to retread some of that ground to give folks yeah. sufficient context. But I'm curious to know if you've got any thoughts on the appropriate place to to start an exchange like that. I don't know. It's weird. It was so uh it it was so authentic and like the conversation <laughs> that we had, it was so authentic and so I don't know. It was perfectly Let's see if we can placed. make this one go bad. Let's now. see if we let's see if we can fuck this up some kind of way. Although I do, I will tell you this: we saw it on Common Ground. I see you got something back there that I'm obsessed with. What's that? The the, um, o- the, the, ocu- the Oculus. The Oculus. Yeah. The Oculus. Yeah. Bro. What do you the, What do you do on your Oculus? So I do a couple things. Number one, I do uh, Fight to the Finish, which is the boxing game. I play that all the time. I've never like, even tried it. I've seen it, but I haven't tried it. So I'm gonna I'm gonna grab that. Okay, Fight to the Finish. Be, You'll be in there huffing and puffing. Fight to the finish, <laughs> Beat Saber, yeah. and uh, fight to the finish, Beat Saber. Here's the thing about the Oculus, real quick. I know we can't stay on the. We're not doing the Oculus. That's all right. But basically, the way the Oculus gets you is you buy it, and then the games are only like twenty nine bucks. So for me, I have a plethora of Oculus games that I don't really even play. I just go, yeah. oh, I might want to play that one day, and then you just buy it. Before you yeah. know it, you've spent a thousand dollars on the entire <laughs> thing. But now it's that has been, to be honest with you. In all seriousness, that's been my escape yeah. from some of the things that have been going on. I have a, I have a, a buddy named Balaji who's been a guest on the podcast in the past, and he, we were talking one day, and he insisted I go get it. Uh, this was the <laughs> previous version, but I got the second one, so you, you can right. tell that I'm, I'm interested because I've mm-hmm. had two of them in the past year. Um, and he said that the Oculus to him when he first used it, it felt like using an iPhone for the first time. It's like a revolutionary device. And mm-hmm. I will say it is like very cool. The the thing I actually use it for most is uh, the meditation app, Trip. Oh, Trip. Uh, I got yeah. Trip. Yeah. yeah. I use right. it. I, I don't use it every morning all the time. But when I get into a rhythm with my meditation practice, mm-hmm. I use it pretty routinely. And I always get like really great results. You can pair it. With your AirPod, like pros, have the noise isolation going, put the headset on, and you get like just this really cool experience, like very, very immersive. Yeah. Um, and uh, I think my other my other favorite app on there is uh, is the Climb, which I know they got a sequel coming out soon. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, as far as the performance that or the. I call it a performance because I thought you performed greatly. I think I I appreciate that. There's no no pejorative implied. (laughs) Right. So I I think that um, a good place to start is just in why I reached out to you. So like somebody, we call our people that listen to higher learning thought warriors, right? Not, not T H O T thought. Oh, not like your thought. T-H-O-U-G-H-T. Okay. That's a completely yeah. different podcast with the thought <laughs> warriors out there. That's a totally different podcast. And so, you know, we try to arm them from our point of view with knowledge and things like that to, you know, help them go out there and use their thoughts to sort of combat some of the 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 lies or the, the disinformation that they might hear. Mm-hmm. Um, and they take that moniker very seriously, right? 
And so they're always, which is not always so great for my mental health, but you know, that's kind of what they do. <laughs> they're always giving me things to be riled up about. Yeah. Like Van, get into this, Van, get into that, Van, get into this. And somebody hit me up. Uh, I was on uh, Instagram and I really appreciate the message. And they said, Kamel Foster on real time. Like, you got to see this. You got to go talk about him. You got to go get at this dude. And I had, I had missed real time. I, I didn't see it. Uh-huh. Okay. So I actually turned it on and began screen recording it. I began screen recording the show yeah. so that I could then make a clip hitting <laughs> at you. That's the way that it happened. There's, there's been a lot of that. So it's, I'm it's sure like, there has, right? Yeah. And then I went to your Twitter and I saw you going back and forth. And something said, after reading a tweet or two, just like watch the entire thing. And so I did. And I watched the whole thing. And I we stood on opposite sides of so many different things. But I felt like that's okay. I felt that I was talking to someone who had a very specific worldview. And it was thought out. It was delivered with no malice. There was no intent to rile anyone up. We were just sharing ideas. And I was like, well, there it is. That's what this is about. Like, that's, and like, I felt like, and this is obviously all from a self-centered, I felt like that's somebody I can talk to. Mm-hmm. And I was more impressed than anything else with the way you comported yourself. And just sort of the the stability of the arguments that were being made. And it just reminded me of a time when me and my homie, because back then I was a Democrat when I was in college, me and my homie from the college Republicans, uh, Jensen, Mm -hmm. when we used to just chill and talk after everybody else was gone. Yeah. And we would just go over things after everybody else was gone. And I like this guy. And I disagree with some of his, with with some of his, his, his viewpoints, his policies, his whatever you want to call it. But he wasn't trying to hurt me or kill me. We just had mm-hmm. two different ways of viewing viewing society. And if we're going to build a more perfect union, uh, uh, <laughs> then we have to find some way to do that. Yeah. And so that's why I reached out. Yeah. No, I appreciate that. And and I, I've appreciated getting to know you and talking to you. And I, I certainly appreciated you reaching out. And I think I said before, there's, there's a thing that you recognize in other people, like when they are actually interested in having constructive conversations with you and there isn't this determination to figure out what you're after and yeah. what kind of insidious motives you have. And what's, what's I think most disappointed me about that recent real time appearance is, um, and I could I could be critical about aspects of my own performance, or but I won't. Um, <laughs> is is the degree to which so much of the criticism I've received is just ad hominem? Like I I would like to know exactly what I said that people found like profoundly unsettling. I've received comments that have said all of the standard dumb stuff, like the derpy mm-hmm. house nigga, you self-hating all that other stuff. But the things that surprised me are like, this is among the most dangerous people I've ever seen on TV. And mm-hmm. for me, it's just astonishing because I'm someone who set out 
to have a conversation and do something that I think is good. And it might be helpful to, to even try to restate briefly what I was hoping to get across. Your comrade on your podcast, I'm forgetting her name. Rachel Lindsay. You said Rachel Lindsay? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So I, I watched the YouTube video of your most recent podcast and I appreciated the complimentary things you had to say about me there. And I heard her criticism. Sure. And the general sense that I got is, you know, it's, it would be a problem if people saw him saying the kinds of things that he's saying publicly because they would think it was okay to embrace his ideas on account of his appearance. And the one thing that I thought to myself when I heard her say that, well, what is, what is it that would happen if people did hear what I was saying and decided to act on it? And in my imagination, that world looks like a world where you're treating people as individuals, you're affirming their sort of dignity as individuals, you're not pre prejudging them and presuming things about them on the basis of their appearance and you have the expectation that they'll do the same thing for you. And in addition to that, you have a sense of like genuine empathy and real concern for people who have genuine needs. And you're interested in figuring out how to best address those needs in an effective and efficient way. And you try your best to avoid getting stuck in conversations or sort of ancillary details that are likely to just make it hard for you to do those things, for you to see people as individuals, for you to recognize the complexity of the problems you're dealing with, and for you to like forge a solution. I think the, the anecdote I gave somebody the other day is it's, you know, it's the married couple like driving in the car mm -hmm. and you're totally lost. And, and, you know, you turn to her, your wife, and you say, look, baby, I get it. I understand you're upset. I'm upset too. Mistakes were made. I know we're lost. I just want to figure out the best way home. Mm. And that's, that's kind of where I'm coming from. And it's surprising to me that, not completely surprising, I actually get it, mm. but it's distressing to me that so many people don't even see that. In the analogy you just used about getting home, what if the only way to get home was for you to listen to your wife in a way that you have never listened to her before. Mm -hmm. What if before you can get home to where you're trying to go, which is both what both of you guys are trying to do, there has to be a reconciliation between you guys that a, you're both moving in the same place mm -hmm. and and B there's mutual respect for the direction in the way that you want to go. So I think for a lot of people, I'm not going to speak for Rachel, but I think for a lot of people, the sort of starting at zero or the whole nine, I think it's a non-starter. I'll just speak for the black people that I know because America spent so long blacking us that they can't unblack us now. I think now there's certain there's a certain way that a lot of people that I know look at justice. They look at reconciliation. And they look at things that need to be done to build the community that has to do with an understanding of the black condition. What what people are saying when they're saying it's dangerous. There's a belief to a lot of people that especially let's just use Bill, for example, 
that they're not really listening to what it is that we're saying about our neighborhoods. They just want us to stop talking. So being that they want us to stop talking, what they'll do is give you little things to make you shut up and then move it along. And there's a thought and a feeling that unless people can really relate to the conditions and the experience that you're having and to how things are and how how, how things have been, unless they really commit to that conversation, that there can there can never be a point to where we're looked at as individuals. And that our strength right now is actually not in our individualism. Our strength is in our cultural connection. So when they see sort of an outlier to that idea, they feel challenged by it. They feel an otherness. And it's the same otherness that they feel coming from white people. So white people, other black people, both intentionally and on accident but cultures other each other all the time that's nothing Mm -hmm. new right Mm -hmm. the othering of black people in america has seemingly had well not seemingly has had specific consequences and so when they see somebody like you seemingly to them othering themselves by saying hey i'm not all of these things i'm just kamel and then bill goes well well of course yeah you're just you you're just they didn't take that and it, it, they, they, the, the fear is Bill then takes that and because endorsed by you, he uses it as a way to cast aside so many of the realities that people feel like they're living with. And it angers them. It angers them because you start to look not as an intellectual, but as a double agent. Hmm. And remember, being yeah, a double... I've seen, I've seen that too. Camille is an agent. Oh, but yeah, right, right. And so yeah. remember, <laughs> you to your point that's must that, that's got to be a difficult situation to be in because what you're saying is my black skin didn't really necessarily sign me up for anything i'm entering into all of these well let me not speak for you mm-hmm. i'm entering into all of these thoughts intellectually but for a lot of people they feel as if hey what you're what you're doing is you're letting white america or america period off the hook and that bothers people mhm yeah, and it's and it's interesting because you know we we arrive at at a discussion with our various contexts and ex- our our unique distinct context and experiences, which can be various. Yeah, all sorts of stuff contributing to it. And you know, when I start a conversation like this, it's with a knowledge of like Lyndon Johnson's speech at Howard University in, I think, like 1965. He's getting ready to sign, like, the fourth civil rights um, bill. And, you know, all of this stuff had been done. And in his remarks, he's giving a speech that sounds virtually identical to the speech that Joe Biden gave at the White House yesterday um, Mm -hmm. when he was getting ready to sign these documents. And there's a hell of a lot of time between 1965 and 2020. Like, substantial, Mm -hmm. right? Right. Um, And... (laughs) The fact is that people have been talking about, you know, America, uh, presidents of the United States, prominent politicians, white people, folks representing the United States government have been talking about their commitment to advancing the ball on various issues. And I think they've not only failed miserably um, in certain cases, and one might say abdicated their responsibilities, but there are other instances in which those policies have actually probably made things worse. And one wonders if it isn't a better idea, like with that context, to proceed 
with trying to address really hard challenges, complicated problems. I talked about COVID on the on real time, but at one point Bill mentioned like Chicago and he mentioned like the horrible stuff that's happening there with kids that are like murdering each other over over like dumb shit. And he mentioned the drug war, but I'm sure like you know, as I know, that oftentimes it's just a lot more petty than that. It's just like dumb street shit that like I'm talking about you on Twitter and you don't like me and I don't like you and I see you, I'm gonna kill you. And figuring out exactly how to address that, it, it feels like it feels like an urgent fire. It feels like something that has to be addressed immediately. And I worry about having to indulge in a, a bunch of, you know, hand waving and and I'm not saying that you're calling for this, but mm-hmm. you know, trying to figure out exactly how we got to here. I don't discourage anyone from having those conversations someplace, mm-hmm. but it does seem appropriate to me to think narrowly and specifically about how we address these specific unique challenges. And I'll add one more thing to this. Um, the, the challenge that I have with a lot of the attempts to broadly frame this as, you know, these are black issues and look at the condition of black people when you have the sort of extreme circumstance that I just described in Chicago and then the kind of everyday lived experience of like someone like me or you who are somewhat prominent people who have like public purchase, who have been somewhat successful in our lives and whatever difficulty we may experience on account of our phenotypic traits, whatever that is, is just not remotely the same. And there's a conflation of the challenges of people in distinct circumstances that I think, again, is another illustration of how like race seems to enter into these conversations and actually obscure just what's happening and make it really hard to actually see what's going on and then inflame tensions around it. Hmm. Yeah, I understand the point of view. If we were to talk specifically about Chicago, you use the word, you said that there are specific needs that there are specific situations that go on in Chicago, right? Mm-hmm. That the specific thing that people have that, that people have there. Some of them are specific. And then to me, some of them aren't right. Okay. When I read Hillbilly Elegy, it was interesting to, to listen to J.D. Vance talk about the honor culture that exists mm-hmm. in Appalachia, right? The yep. fact that they don't take no shit from nobody, right? Yep, yep. They don't take no bullshit from nobody. The J.D. Vance's grandma taught him how to fight, taught him how to throw a right hand, taught him how to nail somebody, right? And she's, you know, family name, you have to fight, you have to be down for that. Then if you read Outliers, when Gladwell goes through kind of honor, honor culture and how things work, I started to think, yo, basically what jd vance is saying in appalachia they thugging that's basically yeah. what he's saying is it's the same thing is the same thing we look at it kind of leading with your manhood first and you're not going to step on my sh- there are different things that they use uh-huh. as bar- barometers for that but yeah. it's really the same thing right yeah um yeah Tom, thomas soul sees that same connection he wrote a book called black rednecks and white liberals and it's it's precisely that insight that the culture in the South, that Southern honor culture was actually taken with particular peoples where they migrated to um, and perhaps contributes to some of the, the violence that we see today. Right. Yeah, it's, an, it's an interesting idea. Um, it's, I certainly it is. think, you know, it's possible. Right, sure. 
So so when you look at things and the way they exist in Chicago, then there's you use the term specific and there is specificity that exists there, right? There's to me specificity that exists into how the gang culture in Chicago manifested itself, mm-hmm. the way and why uh it manifested itself, how the drug war played into that, how the drug war has been used as cover uh in terms of you know, law and order policies that I believe to be ridiculously racist and disproportionate and disproportionately uh sort of punitive to 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 black communities um there are a lot of things there but i think that the one word that i would say is intentionality so you said that linda and we talked about this on sunday you said that lindy b johnson said was saying the same things then that joe biden is saying now this is what i would say uh the democrats which i am not a member of the party i'm a liberal but you know not not a democrat the Democrats have been saying a lot of things to black Americans for a long time. The, the question becomes, what have they been doing? Mm-hmm. A lot of the gestures have been symbolic and a lot of them have been, you know, just really non-starters. If you look at black wealth in 1968 as compared to white American wealth and black wealth as it compares to white American wealth today, you're not going to see very many differences in it. Right. So what has really been done? Like Dr. King's dream was not just about, like it was about content of character, but he said that those two kids were playing together. Like we're mm-hmm. existing in the same society. Sure. And if we're existing in the same society, justice doesn't just stop at you honoring my humility. Justice is environmental justice. Justice is economic justice. Justice is freedom of movement. Justice is freedom of freedom of choice, freedom of all kinds of different things. And the question would be, what does that really look like, look like in America? And how do you really affect that? Mm-hmm. And can you affect it without sort of dealing with generations and generations and generations of intentional engineering, social engineering that left people in a particular place? So if you're going to undo something, right, because racism seems to be the only disease in America that will get better if you just stop talking about it. Every other single thing that afflicts people in America, right? We can't talk about it enough. We can't talk about everything else. Everything else needs more study. It needs more nuance. It needs more discussion. But some kind of way, if we just forget about racism and don't bring it up, then it'll work itself out. Hmm. Well, I got to be honest with you. I think that that's been tried. I think that there there was a time, uh, and I'm going to speak more to the late 80s and throughout the 90s, where a lot of people just kind of moved on with it. There were definitely, there was upheaval, right? You saw the riots, you saw things like that. Even the OJ trial is a good example of how people's pent up animus at America will lead them to do something really kind of fucked up. God killed two people, you know what I mean? But it was hard not to feel like another black man was getting his legs cut off. So I think for me, when I look at a situation like Chicago, there are a lot of things that need to happen there, but they also need to happen in the context of how and why those communities got the way that they the, the way they are. What type of attempts at revitalizing those communities uh, have been made? What type of care has gone into them? Um, I'm not saying that that doesn't need to happen uh 
in the hills of Ohio or some other places like that. But what I am saying is to me, and I'm just going to be very frank, there's a debt that has been paid in this country by African-Americans. And there is a specific erasure of black people, black people in the history of America. Uh, and that erasure has been in almost every way that the people are supposed to thrive in this, in, in the country. There's been erasure of what we've, of, of the work that we've done, of the people who we are, of what we're sort of the opportunities that we're entitled to, like all kinds of things. Right. And mm -hmm. so I think that if we, if I think we would be letting the country off the hook in a way, not to say, Hey, black folks in America have a specific set of problems that are tied to them being black. There's a specific way that we're looked that's tied to us being black. There's a specific place we've been put in in America that's tied to us being black. Let's talk about why that is and talk about if there are solutions to it. I think all that's super interesting and, and I think is is worth sharing. I think what's especially compelling is the, the fact that people feel this way. Mm -hmm. like whether or not you know anyone else agrees, like people have a sensibility that there's something that is wrong that took place and at a minimum, the grievance related to that injury is one that has to be addressed and spoken to. And I, that resonates with me. At the same time, it's, it's hard for me to agree that it hasn't been addressed mm. in lots and lots of ways. At least people speak to those concerns frequently. I think we have a hard time finding an example of a president since you know, for a long time back that hasn't at least spoke to those concerns in some way, shape or form um, and whether or not they always acted in um, a direction that was tangible and sort of meaningfully advanced the ball uh, in terms of either just some sort of performative thing that they sign, like mm -hmm. uh, establishing Black History Month uh, or some other concrete action is a is a separate question. But we talked a bit about um, this, this Baldwin quote, which I've referred to a bunch of times uh, on the podcast before, and it, it might be useful for me to just just say it again, if you'll indulge me, just so that people have it, because Baldwin is so much more eloquent than me. Um, but it's from the fire next time, and it's uh, that sinners have always, for American Negroes, been white is a truth we needn't labor and every Negro, therefore, risks having the gates of paranoia close on him in a society that is entirely hostile and by its nature seems determined to cut you down, that has cut down so many in the past and cuts down so many every day, it begins to be almost impossible to distinguish a real from a fancied injury. One can very quickly cease to attempt this distinction. And what's worse, one usually ceases to attempt it without even realizing that one has done so. And... For me, it's it's hard not to see that it's hard for me not to to see that we seem to be like there. We seem to be in mm. a place where in as much as there is this genuinely awful history and it undeniably has ramifications on present day outcomes. And I think I, I probably mentioned before that the difficulty for me isn't acknowledging that those ramifications are there. It's necessarily true. It's allowing for the fact that like contemporary events are actually complicated 
like as I mentioned earlier, you and I are are quite successful and mm-hmm. like get to move in a lot of elite circles. And as you said, like everything hasn't been repaired. And part of the reason why for me, it's like, well, that history happened and it's relevant and we should know about it. I think it's imperative we know about it for a lot of reasons. But for Susie, you know, young white girl in Nebraska who's born and born into a difficult household situation and her parents like didn't go to university and she didn't have a trust fund. What additional encouragement is she owed in order to fight obstacles that are perhaps equivalent to the obstacles that Sharonda has to overcome in, you know, a suburb of Baltimore where she's coming from a a really similar background. And both of them, you know, need to get out of the house, go off to school, start a career and forge a path of their own. Like what they really need in order to do that, in order to do it well is a commitment to certain kinds of values and a belief in themselves. And if one of those two people is burdened by the gates of paranoia, as Baldwin put it, and has the sense that they need to obtain some sort of apology Mm. from the country as a whole, Mm -hmm. that feels like a cognitive load that is probably disadvantageous it's probably something that that you have to find a place for to imagine that i need an apology for you know the generations of bad things that have happened to my predecessors and i don't know that susie is coming from a background that pre-programs her to have an expectation of that okay so i'll go back to one thing you said about politicians and i just want black people to hear this that might be listening so i'm gonna make a real quick analogy as far as the politicians and guys talking about race. Let's say you go to a restaurant, right? You go to a mm. restaurant. You, you're out here in L.A., Camille? I'm in, uh, in, in outside of San Francisco. Outside of San Francisco. Yeah. So when, when you come to L.A., there's a place out here called Crustaceans. You know it? No. Okay, so it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a restaurant in Beverly Hills. It's where all the okay. black people go. It's like they, okay. they you know what I mean? You no, know, nah, I don't to, know it. See? They, go to, ah, see? they, they, they were waiting for you. Like, is that the guy from real time? So let's say you go to, let's say you go to, let's say you go to crustaceans, right? You go to crustaceans. Uh, you go there one time and you sit down. You could be black, white, red, green, whoever you are. And none of the waiters talk to you, right? None of them, mm-hmm. none of them talk to you. One yeah. waiter comes over and he talks to you. He says to you, he says, hey, how you guys doing? He sits there. He politics with you for a while. And after a while, you realize that you never got your food. Like you're talking to him, but you never really got your food. And then, and mm-hmm. then you know, he goes, oh, just to let you know, the restaurant's about to close. Uh, it just was really busy. I'm sorry. I'll, I'll look out for you guys the next time the next time you come in. Okay, cool. Mm-hmm. So you leave. You come back to Crustaceans. I don't know why you went back, but you did. You have no <laughs> choice. It's where you're going to go. You sit down. Once again, the place is super busy. Everybody's raising their hands. Everybody wants something. Everybody's asking for something. Nobody's talked to you. One waiter comes over. He says, hey, he's joshing with you and stuff like that. This time he actually takes your order. He brings you out an appetizer. You eat the appetizer. You're waiting for the rest of your meal. Right? You're waiting for the rest of your meal. It doesn't come. It doesn't come. So you leave, right? You go back. Same thing. The guy comes out again, blah, blah, blah. At what point do you say, hey, I know you're a nice guy. I know you're paying attention to me. 
I know you're at least taking the order, but I'm mm-hmm. starving. At what point do you go, hey, it's not enough that you see me. Like, we got to eat. Mm-hmm. That is the relationship with Democratic politicians that black people should have. Mm-hmm. It's really not enough that you spoke at Howard. It's not enough that you say, hey, there is substantive goals that the community needs. There are things that need to happen. And it yeah. doesn't matter how much people see you. It doesn't look if you're doing a march and a politician comes to a march where you're marching. That is one of the most insignificant things that they can do. The mm-hmm. march isn't for them. The march is for the activists. The activists are communicating to the politicians. The politicians have a job that happens either in the city hall or the state house or in D.C. And their job is to make the march matter if that's what their constituency cares about. So there's mm-hmm. a way that black Americans have to view politics that needs to be completely overhauled no matter what they think about it. Politics is a game where there is somebody who is supposed to deliver policy based upon the wants and needs of a constituency. And if not, you hold your vote back. Now, we've seen what black American votes can do, especially on the general level, right? But that has to happen everywhere. You have Mm -hmm. to make your communities count by making your political mobilization count. So it really doesn't matter in the past what these guys have said. It really more matters what they've done. And I'll be honest with you, I don't think that they've done the right things. And also, I don't think there's been much thought going into what they actually should have done. I think these things are evolving, and even the thoughts on these things are evolving. As it relates to Susie and Sharonda there, I really don't know what what uh, if Susie is owed an apology for anything. I don't think that an apology would matter to either person. Um, I think that when I was a when I was growing up in Baton Rouge, my father told me he's like, "You look, you big, and you got great hands, but you ain't fast. So you need to understand what it's going to be like <laughs> on the football field for you." <laughs> and I think that he would have been. I think he would have ill prepared me to go compete without letting me know that just by way of my station of existence, there were things that I would have to be ready for. Mm -hmm. There were things that I would have to know. I would have to know how to play with the, how to to play with the defender a little bit more. I would have to know how to do other things and I would have to maybe work to a different degree if I wanted to get there. And also in, in, as a result to these things that, have to do with so many sacrifices to the other people you also need to know how to carry a legacy on you need to know what it means to be a black woman in america in my opinion because there were sacrifices made and by the way that's happening for Susie. when Susie goes and sits down in a in a classroom Mm -hmm. she hears she hears ad nauseum about every single american it starts with christmas addicts Then it goes all into the rest of these guys. She hears ad nauseum about every single American, every American that made any sacrifice so that she could be there and have the opportunity to get forward in this country. And that instills into her a sense of national pride, a sense of patriotism that that probably probably in, in her case makes her a fuller American. Black people don't get that. Our story. No, I don't think we get it at all. I don't I, I don't I don't I think our story is undersold in the country. I think, well, let me ask you this. I don't think so. 
How do you think that America does do that for black people? Well, it's, it's, I suppose it's different because for me, it's not so much for black people, but the story of black progress mm-hmm. um, and the progress is material. I mean, you don't go from like slavery to Barack Obama being president of the United States and a, a universe of distinct and successful and prominent black figures, you know, some of the most important people in the country um, on the planet are black people who are the descendants of slaves in the United States. You don't have that happen without some pretty extraordinary progress. I think that entire story is illustrative of that, that progress and that whole process of a union that is becoming more perfect with time. And it is, filled with deficiencies and defects. There's all sorts of stuff that was wrong at the beginning and many things that are wrong today, but there is a possibility and an opportunity. And, you know, I I think back to my young self and when I first heard about Martin Luther King and sort of fell in love with the sentiments that all most Americans are familiar with. I'd say all like I'd say that, you know, the 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 cadence of the I have a dream speech is probably as important to the American experience and identity as anything that any president has uttered. I mean, you get that. If you go to school in the United States, you get that. Yeah, no, I don't think it's left out. I think that's, a, that's you, there. It's core to it. So do you think that in most classrooms, while you get the I have a dream speech, do you yeah. get the FBI's attempts to, uh, do you get J. Edgar Hoover's attempts to, destabilize Martin Luther King's movement? Do you get... To, to try and get him to kill himself. No, to I try don't think and get you get that. Kill no, you don't get that. You don't think that that's important context for kids to, I, to, to learn I about when they're learning about the, li- the life of Dr. King? <laughs> <laughs> Actually, I definitely think it's important. I, I suppose I think it's important in a different way um, and for different reasons than I, I think you're insinuating because you're we're talking about it in the context of race. And for me, like I I think you should be we should be skeptical of and constantly vigilant about the use of power uh, by government. And Hmm. certainly some sort of domestic surveillance apparatus is incredibly dangerous and has been used to target um, various movements and people in this country who are as, as dignified and now renowned and loved as Dr. King, like the FBI tried to destroy him. They saw him as a threat. Um, and they, they wanted to take him out. So it's the sort of thing that for me, like that's the lesson I extract from it. And it's the reason why I'm concerned today about all of the talk that I hear about domestic terrorism laws that folks think we need to implement and renewed efforts to try and, you know, castigate a wide swath of the American public as, you know, domestic terrorists, like all of that language makes me nervous and the lesson, the reason that it makes me nervous is because of the lessons I extracted from, you know, that experience with Dr. King. So I do think that's important, um, but not in a, a narrowly racial way. And I don't think as a kid, you know, growing up, hearing about Dr. King and his various victories, I don't know that I, yeah, I mean, I, I think you need that other lesson, but I don't know that you need it, you know, as a, as a black person per se. Well, I'll tell you why I think that you do. And not mm-hmm. just in terms of Dr. King. I think uh, you need it when you're discussing Fred Hampton. You need it when you're discussing um, any of the things that COINTELPRO 
were were, mm-hmm. were, were involved in. And the, and the reason why I feel like you need it is because, number one, Dr. King's legacy has been rewritten. And Dr. King is used now yeah. as uh, a, a sort of example of somebody whose pacifism is kind of portrayed as the right way to go about things. And the, and the reality is that he was a radical and for the ideas of his, the ideas of his time, they were radical. Mm-hmm. They were, they were radical. Dr. T, Dr. King was economically destabilizing in Montgomery through the bus boycotts that he became a part of. Sure. He was socially destabilizing. He was shaking American like society to its core. Yeah. He was actually taking shots at the white liberal, the white moderate, mm-hmm. as much as he was the racist. And Dr. there's a there's a holistic view of Dr. King's dream that has to do with also economic justice. Dr. King towards the end of his life. Yeah, the poor people's um, campaign. Sure. Right. Dr. King towards the end of his life had understood that it would the comp the problem in America was even more complex. But I think sometimes the story of black men is told in a way, or the story of black luminaries is told in a way that most serves white society. Hmm. And I think that that, to be honest with you, is intentional. Because if you if you want people to know about Dr. King, like there's a there's a kid right now that is going to learn right now about rock and roll. I remember learning about the Beatles. We did a whole thing about the Beatles, right, in school. I actually wrote a play, first play I ever had produced, look at me, Prodigy, first play <laughs> I ever produced, I wrote a play incorporating Beatles songs, right? Uh-huh, uh-huh. Did we learn anything about Muddy Waters in that school? Now, that might seem like a small thing, but the, re- the, the, the reality is that the erasure of black American culture and the minimizing of it makes people feel like they actually are less than in this country. They have less of a stake in these things. And that's something that you can't teach. I was listening to somebody, uh, I was listening to one of my homies from Africa, right? And he was telling me about something. He was like, there's a difference between you and I, and it's because I live in a place where I see so many examples of, of black excellence. I see black doctors, black lawyers, black people. Everyone I see is black. So if I come over here or if I go anywhere, it doesn't seem like a big deal to me. Well, that's incredibly important, right? But also you have to wonder if black Americans have meant more to American society than is being portrayed, if they're more complex than being portrayed and they're not being portrayed and discussed and uplifted and exalted in that way, then the question would be why? Like, 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 why is is that a thing? Why is there such uh, a Eurocentric focus on sort of the formation and the current existence of America right now? Hmm. And if you want people to feel like a part of something, it might behoove you to include them. <laughs> and I and I personally think that more to the point. That's kind of what a lot of black Americans are talking about. I'll speak for my for my people. When you're over policed and you don't have sort of access to some of these some of these things, you feel as if there's something going on. There's another side of this. There's another part of this. And you're not involved in that. And you start to ask the questions why. And those questions are answerable. 
they're out there. So what Baldwin is saying is absolutely right. I got that. I'm looking at that book right now. Love mm-hmm. Baldwin, and it's true. I don't think anyone can blame anything for the reason why they don't get to where they're going. But I think the state that you're in, whoever you are, can always be explained. Mm-hmm. Now, if somebody comes to me and they say, and they say, Van, I can't do this because I'm black, I'm going to be like, uh, it's probably not true. Mm-hmm. All right. But if someone comes to me and they said and they say I'm black, so I'm having a harder time getting there. The reality is they have <laughs> both current information and a, a whole plethora of experiences to probably back that up. When people see George Floyd get 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 killed, when I saw George Floyd killed I'm say something kind of disgusting. When I saw George the George Floyd video, it wasn't even about George Floyd. It wasn't. I made that about me. The reason why I made that about me is because I've been assaulted by police officers. And because I've been assaulted by police officers and my homie have, and we've been handcuffed and stuff like that, we're connected to the experience of the one instance where it went too far. And so I think that there is uh something both intellectually and culturally that binds black people to their experience here. And I think it's a mistake to make, to ask them to discount it. Hmm. Well, I, just briefly, I'll say, you know, I, I hear, I hear you with the, the call for representation and certainly something I've heard a lot before. I mean, I think it, it's a challenge because I, I see so much representation and I feel like I have all my life. Well, we need more, Kamel. We <laughs> need the 80s, more. <laughs> the, the biggest, biggest television show growing up was the Cosby show. It was Dr. Dr. Huxtable. Yeah. And I mean, you know, like I've, I've always been surrounded by that. I've always had an expectation that I could be successful. And I think in a number of instances, it's, it's worth acknowledging that, you know, there are cohorts, like quote unquote black cohorts in this country that tend to, to be exceptionally successful, like, you know, Nigerian, African, Caribbean, um, first generation immigrants, like that is the model minority among the most successful minority groups in the country. Um, it, it's, it seems to me that there, there are lots of examples of that. Um, but, you know, we may agree to disagree on that. I think the point that you're raising about George Floyd is it's obviously one that resonates with a lot of people. Um, when I, you know, heard that story, I, I've done a lot of work on criminal justice reform issues and have covered a lot of those stories in different contexts and honestly couldn't bring myself to watch the video um, mm-hmm. for a long time because I've just, like, you get nightmares after a little while. You see enough yeah, of that it's stuff. trauma. And anytime I hear George Floyd's name, I think about, like, Kelly Thomas, like, that video. And I think I talked to you about that when we talked the we last did. time. The, mm-hmm. um mentally challenged man who the police were trying to take him into custody and effectively beat him to death while trying to take him into custody. And he he went to the hospital and was, you know, in critical condition. You watch this video and it's just this man screaming for his, for his father, um, begging for help and he dies. And it, when I see that, and I see the George Floyd thing, I'm reminded of the work of Barbara Fields, who's a, a historian at Columbia who wrote a book called Racecraft. And the, the main thrust of her book, if I can sort of 
you take a whole book and try to reduce it to like two sentences <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> yeah. is that like race is created by racism. And when we use it, like we end up having an impact on various other sort of attributes of the world and the framings of problems um, that we're, that we're talking about. And we can oftentimes create obstacles to building broader coalitions across broader communities of concern who have the same sort of issues because of these, these artificial boundaries that are created by race. And I think with like criminal justice reform in particular, that's a place where we've created this perception of an issue that is unique and distinct to Black people, when in fact, there's a pretty broad population that's actually impacted by this, even if Blacks are overrepresented in some of those statistics. And it's also worth mentioning that, you know, with things like overpolicing, like in the 1970s, like late 1970s, into the early 80s, what people were mad about was under-policing. It's, you had Charlie Rangel like, banging on about the death penalty for drug dealers because the white racists were letting drug dealers run wild in black communities and sell poison to black children and kill them. Mm -hmm. um, so it's, there's been a seesaw. And in, in a sense, it's always possible to cast these things as racial issues and it isn't untrue that there's a racial dynamic, but race isn't irreducible. There's always something underneath it because it is, it is artificial. It necessarily is concealing a great many things. Even at the time of slavery, when blacks were enslaved, like, it wasn't merely that blacks were enslaved. There's an entire um, context in which something like that happens that leads to blacks being enslaved in particular. And understanding all of those dynamics is important for understanding that history and understanding those dynamics in a contemporary setting is important, I think, for actually meaningfully addressing problems. I think it's, it's detrimental when people say things in response to, you know, deaths that are happening or, or criminal justice issues and say, well, it looks like there's a, a genocide on black men. It looks like it's open season on black men. They, they can't kill us all. And I'm not just pulling those phrases out of thin air. Like prominent people have said those things mm -hmm. in the context of discussing just the cases that we're talking about here. So a couple of things. Number one, people definitely over the course of history have gotten things wrong, right? So there was certainly an overreaction uh, in terms of the drug war to, I don't, and that's the only reason why I can sit here having voted for, for Joe Biden, right? People in history have made policy mistakes that have impacted communities all over. There have mm -hmm. been things that have been done wrong. You come back and you say, hey, I, I, I voted wrong. This was wrongheaded. This had unintentional consequences. Maybe they were intentional. There's no way for me to know. But you say now they're unintentional. This is how I've learned. Mm -hmm. And I'll, I'll, I'll be a better public, public servant. So I'm sure that there was an overreaction to the the Scarface era cocaine boom that was happening all over the place and how heroin hit the streets. And a lot of people made a lot of decisions about where these resources would go. They mm -hmm. ended up uh, creating a criminal class um, for other things that they may have not anticipated. So that's certainly true. Mm -hmm. I would say about race as it relates to slavery or the beginnings of black people here is once again, 
even the term black itself is a very intentional term used mm-hmm. to denote people who are of less human status that can continue to be harvested for slavery. So mm-hmm. it's a very intentional word used uh, in Europe to say, hey, we can continue to use black people for the purpose of slavery. So in its inception, the term black has always meant lower than. Okay. So when we turn when we talk about the experience of being black in America or being black here on this continent or in the West Indies or any other place, we're talking about a very specific structure that is always denoted that you were less than. And what we're what we're asking is to reimagine and rediscuss being black in America as something that's inclusive, as something that means equal to. Now, this is a conversation that's been fluid. It was being had then, right? Because at the mm-hmm. same time that the framers were putting together the documents that would make this country up, there were guys who in their later years, like Benjamin Franklin and and, and other guys who were deriding slavery that entire mm-hmm. time. Who even So even when people say, hey, it was just the times, there were people even then sure. uh, who realized that it was wrong, okay? Mm-hmm. And so what you've seen is over the course of years, institutions of white supremacy and institutions of American hypercapitalism try to continue to use this class warfare in order to have a society where white wealth and white privilege sit at the top of it and black people sit at the bottom of it. And that has been very intentionally done. So I I keep saying that. So over the course of time, yeah, when you say black is not it's not a casual thing. It's an active thing. It's always meant something. It's for like the term black is invented, invented mm-hmm. for the purposes of slavery and dehumanization, right? So it's always meant something, right? It's always sure, meant for, something. For otherizing, yeah. For, for other, right? Uh-huh. So for us now that black Americans have taken upon themselves to define themselves for themselves and to speak about the culture, the history, and the state that we want to live in right Mm -hmm. now that we have an idea and we have great thinkers like Kamel Foster and we have (laughs) all types of people like that. And we're, we're self-definitive of what we, of who we are and what we want in this country. We don't want at least the ones that I know, we don't want our blackness stripped from us because there was a price paid for it. What we want now is for that blackness to be, respected enveloped and to a degree reconciled with like Mm. there there have been other countries that have had these completely germany had a whole truth and reconciliation period because the country realized that they allowed themselves to be co-opted as a nation by some of the worst vile entities that have ever walked this planet they they realized that and in order to be back up to be readmitted to the world stage or a Mm. part of the world community they forced themselves to look at themselves and to understand how people could go along with the deaths of 12 million people and that's not even starting a world war 20 million dead all of that stuff like that right so for me i think it's 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 dangerous to not not dangerous it's well, it is dangerous. It's dangerous not to ask America to be active 
in not just the future, but in the present and in reconciling the past because there's nobody who, this is the conundrum, Kamel, is mm-hmm. there's no one who I speak to and who I talk to that doesn't want to be a part of it, that doesn't want to be, like there's, there's nobody who I know, well, mm-hmm. maybe a couple people I know, who would be upset if racism came to an end tomorrow? Maybe there are a couple of people that's getting money. Who be? But, who be what? Uh, you said? I said. I said. Maybe I said. There's maybe a couple of people I know who would be upset if racism in, ended tomorrow. There's a couple <laughs> okay. of people. There's a couple All of right. people getting. There's a couple of people getting money. Uh, but the most people that I know, what they are struggling for is to be a part of it. They want to be a part of it. They want the equal protection. They want to feel like their their hair, their history, their upward mobility. Uh, the the way that they talk, the way that they dress, the things that are just intensely and inherently almost uniquely American. They want to be, they want to feel as if they belong to this entire thing Mm -hmm. and they don't, and they're not making it up. And so what I'm thinking is what, if if America really is a community with all of us, Mm -hmm. why don't we help each other be a part of it? Well, when you say they're not making it up, I mean, I, I, I believe that their sense of feeling outside of things is is tangible um that it's it's real um the degree to which they're they're actually experiencing a circumstance where they're like being pushed away and they're unable to to feel fully american um and fully a part of the the country i mean i I can't, I can't speak to, I can't speak to that. I mean, I know that personally, I don't have a difficult time like feeling fully American. And perhaps part of the reason is because I have this other peculiarity, which is like, I don't self-identify as black, but that's not because I hate blackness. It's because I don't find race to be a terribly useful way to go about making assessments about people or circumstances most of the time. And that doesn't mean that I don't regularly encounter people who regard me as black. And it certainly doesn't mean that I'm immune to someone who meets me and is going to treat me in a particular way on account of my phenotypic traits, the Mm. texture of my hair or anything else. Um, But the truth of the matter is that in most circumstances in 2020, given the remarkable progress that has been made, it is simply not the case that I'm going to be, you know, in a debilitative state because I can't access things on account of my appearance or people won't want to help me on account of my appearance, you know, much the contrary, actually, in my own experience, which is not to say things aren't different from someone who's from a more difficult circumstance and for someone who hasn't had the privilege of, of, receiving the gift that you and I obviously both had, which is to be well-read and to be like curious about the world and to have someone encourage you and inspire you to take, you know, your, your academic opportunities seriously. Like you, you do have to do those things if you're Mm -hmm. actually going to have access to this wider world. But the notion of holding on to your blackness because, you know, a price has been paid for it it calls to mind my other favorite passage from um, from Baldwin. I don't have to read this whole one, um, but it's it's that one must be careful not to take refuge in any delusion. And the value placed on the color of skin is always and everywhere and forever a delusion. And I think that's true. 
And I think that's true even for ourselves when we imagine that we have to embody these identities. And to the extent there's a way out, to the extent there's an avenue, um, I think there's something to be said for thinking about how we constructively can move beyond race because race is not a, a sort of biological genetic reality. It is a social construct. It is a story that is material and has some impact on the real world, but it isn't the entire story of who we are. And it almost never is the entire story of any particular challenge that we're trying to explain and understand. And we just, we often just get stuck there. We yeah. arrive at, you know, well, this is the disparity between these two groups. See, this must be a result of, you know, historical slavery and injustice. We have to fix it. There are people like Ibram Kendi, for example, who wrote um, Stamp from the Beginning. He's become very prominent. He picks up like fat bags from people like Jack on Twitter. Um, and he's pushing this anti-racist program. And his pers pers perspective is that anywhere you look that you see disparities between racial groups, you know, that's evidence of racism. And we need to do something to address those disparities. And I just think that's such a, it's such an obviously wrong and impoverished view. Like the, the reality is that in those cohorts where there are disparities, there are disparities within the groups themselves. It's true of, as true of quote unquote Asians as it is of quote unquote whites and quote unquote blacks. Like the, the, as I mentioned already, like certain black groups like do really, really well. Um, and certain other black groups don't do nearly as well. And I wonder how constructive it is for us to think about challenges like poverty in that way when you've got, you know, some 20 odd million like white Americans who are in poverty and some nine odd million black Americans who are in poverty. I think that's right. The poverty is, I imagine, like the same sort of awful concern for all of them and the challenge of creating a society where they all have an opportunity to thrive. Like that's all of our responsibility and I don't feel like more obliged to help someone on account of their blackness than their whiteness and I would hope that we can get to a place where none of us would feel that way the goal is to just get that number as low as possible and the disparities exist today that's true but eliminating the disparities isn't nearly as important to me as fixing the problem in general fascinating a couple of things there uh, number one um people gonna hear 9 million versus 20 million, they're going to talk about the percentages and the prevalence. I should, I should of, get my numbers right because I might be wrong that someone go could be. Right, 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 right. It is not. So they're going to talk, about, <laughs> so we're, we're, talk about the percentages. They're gonna talk about the percentages. But also, I think yeah, yeah. that uh, I, I have, first of all, just a brief question. Do you identify as an American? I do, yeah. What's the difference? Well, I was, was born here, but I also take my citizenship very seriously. It, it is something that I choose to be a part of. I could move to another country if I were so inclined. So there's something happenstance about it, but there's also an affirmative choice being made. I didn't move to back to Jamaica where my family is from. Um, I didn't move to Cape Town, South Africa, which I think mm. is, you know, one of the most beautiful cities on earth. I like absolutely love it there. I choose to live in the United States. I choose to be an American. Mm. Um, so there's a bit of an accident of birth, but right. there's also a deliberate choice being made there. Um, and in you much the same way, I choose my associations with people and I don't right. do it on the basis of, you know, right. phenotypic 
traits. I did choose my wife, at least in part, on the basis of her physical attributes. Hey. But she's also remarkable. Right. <laughs> she's that too. It's both. You, you would agree, <laughs> though, that the fact that you are an American is largely due to the fact that you were born here, right? And yes, yeah, it, like, yes we're, and if we're being no. practical. Yeah, being, yes and no, but I mean, my, but that's what I'm saying. Like people vote with their feet to come here all the time. And sure, part of it. So sure. yes, it, in this, yes, that's true. In I think in part, but people around the world like want to be here, and there's Ooh. a reason. And I, right. people around to the, the world, I have any sort black. of. Well, that's true too. <laughs> right, that's, right. Which is which? Right, I people think around is, the world, there's people around the world that want to be black. My point, which which my, actually, which actually, I think is a challenge for you. If Why? being black is inherently difficult, challenging, bad, awful, if it's not something that people see, for it to be something with this profound cultural resonance, mm -hmm. like all around the world where people like take elements of what they perceive as black culture and try to make it their own, which culture and appropriation is a whole nother conversation I'd love to have with mm -hmm. you because mm -hmm. I don't think cultures can be appropriated. Um, Interesting. It's hard to say at the same time that it's reviled and it's less well, than. Well, it's, well, it's revered. It, it depends on the way you look at it, right? Because the okay. way I look at it is everybody thinks they want to go be an astronaut till it's time to go down to Houston and train. So, <laughs> so, 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 like, 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 what, like, what I, well, like, what, like, what, like, so, what I would say is, there's a lot of people out there that think they want to be black. But I can. I don't think they really want that. They don't want that. Like, like they want to smoke. You want to go to space, but you don't want to do six thousand crunches a day and, okay. and have to exist in a zero gravity. <laughs> okay, uh, but no. I, I, I like the reason why. I guess the the reason why I asked uh, for the distinction was because it, we're human beings. We created everything. Yeah. There's nothing that we didn't create. Yeah. Like we created gender. We created, uh, we we created to the degree in which we named it, put it like like gender. Well, there's obviously there are obvious biological differences, but yeah. the, I mean, like, there's, there's chromosomes, right? Like that's right. A, that's a gender, and it's interesting because in one respect, like gender is a tangible thing. Like there's there can be a spectrum, there can be all sorts of things around it, but there are two poles. There's a male and female. There is no such equivalent with race. I know, but my my the point that I'm the point that I'm making though is, um, gender itself, the biological component of it, sex itself, sex itself, we didn't create gender, and sort of mm -hmm. the societal constructs that exist okay. around gender, okay. we created those, and okay. so so my thing is, at a certain level, it's all arbitrary, right? At a certain level, we're all human beings, mm -hmm. but the if we're being intellectually honest, that's not the level, at least for me. That's not the level that we live here in. That's we true. live here. We live here in with we, we live here on Earth with all sorts of distinctions. Yeah. And human beings make active choices every day about which distinctions they are going to give power to and which distinctions they aren't. Okay. For a lot yeah. of people, I know, uh, I know guys that are so patriotic. Like my cousin Rara is a Marine. He'll tap mm. you on the shoulder and ask you to take your hat off at a baseball game when the when the, when the, you know what I mean? Yeah, yeah, when, I know when, that guy. Like, like, yeah, like he'll tap you on the shoulder, and be like, "Yo, man, like, hey, like, my, a lot of my family's in the military. Yo, take your hat off. Yeah, you know what I mean for my brothers. You'll know my brothers at my brothers right now. They in Afghanistan. Take your hat off. And if you don't take your hat off, you're gonna deal with a marine. Mm -hmm. I think that's crazy, and I and it's embarrassing whenever he does it. 
But there are people, I know people on the other side of my family that if we're at a game, mm-hmm. a basketball game, a baseball game, they're going to kneel mm-hmm. as soon as the anthem comes on. So all of these things are things that you choose, right? Sure. My thing with my thing with being black is that it 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 was the blackness of Dr. King that it was the the plight of his people that pushed him to American greatness. It was the plight of the people of it, even we're talking about Baldwin. Baldwin's if if you read enough Baldwin, you'll see that it is Baldwin spent his life his life discussing the specific experience of what was then known as the American Negro. He spent mm-hmm. his life discussing that. It propelled his art. It propelled all of those things. And the reason why it was because it was something that those men and women, and if you, you know, when you talk sure. about, you know, it's something that those men and women felt was necessary to understand in order, in order to contextualize the greater American experience, right? Mm-hmm. Because America is made up, is supposed to be made up of all these small little treaties. These little treaties that we've that we've signed, some unsaid, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. Most unsaid, mm-hmm. with each other to be able to exist, to coexist in, in this space, society, yeah. in the same yeah. space. And those treaties aren't signed for no reason. They have a great reason. They have great importance, right? I've told mm-hmm. people this before. I'm like, uh, it's not about the big things that you do. It's about the small things that you do. And mm-hmm. I actually, it's it's beautiful to me that we're all so different because the only thing we have in common, the only thing that we all have in common is that we're all different. That's the only thing we all have in common is that some of us are short, some of us are tall, some of us are black, some of us are white. The rarity that we exist in as human beings is the thing that gives us commonality. And so for me, when I look at when I look at my situation as a black man, I love what people and look, man, it, I was informed different. Like I'm driving down roads, Highland Road and Baton Rouge. And my grandfather is saying, hey, you see that tree right there outside of the Annabellum home? He's like, mm-hmm. there's souls on that tree. It's mm. souls on that. I'm like, what do you mean? He's like, there's some souls on that tree. I can tell you right now. Look how low that branch hangs. Let me explain to you what it means and what it has meant to be here. I don't, I don't, I don't want to tell you this because I want you to understand that there is a specific meaning, a specific triumph that is you. Yeah. You, your, there's a specific triumph that mm-hmm. is you. And that's something, and, by, and that's the only reason why we do that for everybody. Everyone does that. Everybody does that. Like what, like I said, that's the, the a making of a, the making of an American citizen mm-hmm. is to uh, ensure that they understand their history, America's place in the world, what America has done. And like when we're in class, they don't talk about geopolitics and uh, client spons and client terrorism all over the world. They don't <laughs> talk about Operation Mongoose and all of that stuff. They don't discuss any of that because. That's not important to the story. The important to the story is a lot of great people, even when they talk about disrespecting of the flag, they don't say just don't disrespect the flag because we like the flag. They right. put a they put a person on that. They say when you disrespect the flag, you disrespect the military. So yeah, now yeah, yeah. you're disrespecting some kid from Oklahoma City right. who decided that he wanted to go over to Fallujah and fight. He died. You don't stand for that flag. You're spitting on his grave. 
Yeah. And so one thing that has never been done to me is the inclusion of black Americans as part of that story. That's why hmm. I think my blackness is important because I want the inclusion of black Americans and in into that story. And that's why it's hmm. so important to me. And that's why I ride for it. Yeah. I'm, you're telling the story about the tree and I'm, I'm linking that back to what you were saying about like Baldwin and Martin Luther King. And in truth, you know, when I think about that, that profound journey, like the incredible challenges that have been overcome and in terms of like giving freedom in this country to a broader cross section of humanity like I think about John Brown and Elijah. Of Lovejoy, course. Who but why would you think about John Brown before you thought about Frederick Douglass? No, I'm, they, but I don't think about them. I, I mean, the sequence doesn't matter to me. Like they both did the same thing. They were committed to the same cause. Like, and, the, and those two men that I just mentioned both laid down their lives for the purposes of obtaining that greater freedom. And I mentioned them because I don't think that in order to, to appreciate and to feel the goosebumps that I feel when you talk about those strange fruit hanging from the tree, mm-hmm. I don't think you have to be black to feel that. Mm. I don't think you have to have, you know, and, and this may be, you know, the idealist in me, mm-hmm. um, because I think about like Juneteenth, for example, yeah. uh, and I shared this with someone earlier. I think it's a beautiful idea. Mm-hmm. Like I want it to be like Christmas. I want to be able to walk down the street and like we hug each other and it's like happy Juneteenth and it doesn't matter who that person is. And they're not saying it to me like you're celebrating Juneteenth, mm-hmm. right? Because my understanding of the human experience to take it beyond America is that most people throughout most of history have been subjugated. Like at the same time that, that chattel slavery existed in the United States, serfdom existed in Russia and mm-hmm. there, were, there were more people in serfdom in Russia and the conditions of both were brutal. Um, in fact, the, the, there's some suggestion that the diet, and this is not, someone will hear this and they will read this the wrong way. I'm just trying to illustrate the comparison. Please mm-hmm. don't beat me up. But there's some indications that like the dietary circumstances that the average surf suffered under were actually a bit worse. That's not mm-hmm. to say that serfdom was worse. I'm trying to illustrate that they were both bad. That's not for you, Van. That's for someone okay. who's ready to yeah. savage me. Right. Um, so, I mean, I just think that there's, like, that's what I'm working to. From, from my standpoint, like, the greatest achievement of our species is this expanding circle of concern and our ability to abandon our tribalist instincts. Mm-hmm. And I think we've been doing that we've been doing a tremendous job of it in some respects and in many ways. And I worry in some cases about the urge to do good and to achieve, you know, a better world, but while doubling down on these designators of difference and doubling down on this, this sense of who we are that is rooted so much in the past and what came before. And I just, I want to challenge people to do to do better than that. And I actually think it's I think it's expedient for a number of reasons. I think it is it 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 removes some of the obstacles that are there when it comes to actually just giving dignity and honor to your whole person, your individual person. Um, but it also makes it a lot easier, I think, to to actually talk about like really hard problems when we don't find ourselves constantly tripping over you know, race and all this stuff associated with it. 
Um, but we've been going for a minute, so maybe I'll give you the last word, um, unless you got a few more things you want to go back and forth about and maybe pick nah, it up again another great. time. Yeah, we, I feel like this is the first of many. Uh, but So this is what I'll say. Um, number one, there's a reason why Juneteenth isn't a national holiday. It should be. Juneteenth should be everything that you just said it should be. Juneteenth, the entire country, from sea to shining sea, should celebrate Juneteenth. There shouldn't be not one thing that we can celebrate more. The end, Juneteenth, is the celebration of the end of the most un-American period in American history. If America is supposed to be about uh, we the people, if America is supposed to be about equal protection under the law, if America Mm -hmm. is supposed to be about the equality of every man, then the end of slavery, chattel slavery in this country, should be a no-brainer day of absolute bliss, glee, jubilation. Mm -hmm. Everyone. It is not that. It is not a national holiday. It is a day that really, until most recently, most white people didn't have a clue existed. I Lots I, of black people didn't have a clue it existed either. That Well, therein lies my point. It was a day till just recently was a completely forgotten day. And I think that is emblematic of the experience of black people in this country. So Juneteenth, Kamel, if we lived in the world that you want us to live in, Juneteenth wouldn't be just about being black. Juneteenth would be amongst the most American holidays. It would be a time where we all understood that for whatever reason, we could come together and be better than what we were at our most at our worst moments. Mm-hmm. The reason why it's not a holiday is because Juneteenth wasn't the end. The end of slavery wasn't the end. It was just the beginning of a different type of degradation of black American bodies. And until, in my opinion, until America can properly contextualize why, just, just what you just said, your views, your, your view of Juneteenth is 100% right. As far as the Russians and serfdom and stuff like that, I'm not up on it. I, 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 I'm sure it was bad, but I'm talking about <laughs> what's happening here on the home front, right? So, so, so your version of Juneteenth is exactly the way it should be. And Kamel, it's exactly the way it would be if our advancement, our agency, our place in this country was properly reconciled uh, and, 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 and if we fit properly here in this country, if we were as human hmm. as other people, the very day that celebrates our humanity would be that. But you know what? Even wanting to celebrate Juneteenth is in and of itself divisive. Hmm. Making Juneteenth a holiday saying, hey, we should make Juneteenth a holiday is in and of itself a divisive thing. How could it be? Mm-hmm. How could that be a debate if everything is as you say it is? And so, or even as you would want it to be. So, so my only point to that would be this. There's just a lot of work to do. And the, the work isn't fair. The work isn't right. 
but it's necessary. And to be honest with you, we need the bean counters. We need people going, okay, just we're going to do this. Like, I don't want to see anybody be poor. I don't, the kids in, in Appalachia with Mountain Dew Mouth, bro, I went down such a rabbit hole for like a year and a half after I mm. read Hillbilly Elegy, just familiarizing myself with other people's. It is heartbreaking. Mm-hmm. It's heartbreaking. Yeah, yeah. But I have, I have a... I have a cultural obligation to those black and brown kids in South Baton Rouge, Louisiana, because I was them and I am them. And I just Mm. take that very seriously. That's what I'll say. Okay. Well, I I said I'd give you the last word. (laughs) I want to ask you a question because we talked for like maybe three hours now. Sure. And we've talked for three hours and you saw the real time thing. And I'm, I'm thinking about like that last like closing point I was trying to make um, before this segment got wrapped where I was saying that, you know, the fact is that when it comes to something, you know, really challenging problems like education and, uh, you know, economic challenges, it's often the case that making those things about race, that casting them in terms of race actually makes it really hard to see the kind of things that you need to see in order to address those problems in a sound and effective way. And now that you've talked to me and you have a little bit more context for where I'm approaching those, where I'm approaching these issues from and why I might say that, does that claim seem any more true to you that there are circumstances where making race the focal point of a conversation about America's failing education system is counterproductive to the project of actually obtaining like schools that actually meet the needs of kids. Hmm. No, it doesn't, but I understand it. Okay. And, and so, and so I think that's the starting point. And I think I, 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 but I know it doesn't. I think that there are things that are specific, but I understand it. And to be honest with you, it makes it to for me personally to where it would be interested. It would be interesting to work with you on it. Mm-hmm. It would be interesting to find out those answers. Yeah, it would be interesting to to sit down and compare notes and kick things around. It would be interesting to fight a multi front battle for the soul of black America and for the soul of the country too. Mm-hmm. And it would be interesting uh, to build more bridges and build more structures and build a diaspora of thought, not mm-hmm. just of colors of people's skins and, and, and culture, but a diaspora of thought on these things. Yeah. And I feel like if we can't shake hands, agree to disagree and agree that we both want the same goals, then we'll mm-hmm. never be able to do that. Yeah. My, from my standpoint, the, the response I've received afterwards, aside from the negative response, like the affirmative response, oftentimes from a lot of quote unquote white people, um, but also from plenty of black folks as well, is like, thank you. And they're not saying thank you for you know mm. giving me cover for my white privilege. Okay, like that's yeah. not the sense. Be I careful, Camille. <laughs> that's not the sense. I get. Right, when, right. when they when they say thank you, the sentiment is 
I want to fix things. I want to stop being at loggerheads. And I worry about us working at cross purposes, demonizing one another, because there's this like sort of zero sum politics that is just kind of, we're all in the grips of. Mm. And I think that's really the sentiment. So yeah, I don't know. I, I mean, Ben, I'm like so glad that we've connected and yeah, I appreciate me too, bro. you making time to have these, con- these conversations. I think it's like, I think it is actually like good for the soul and good for people broadly to be able to build bridges and thank you for not calling me Candace Owens, who I'm sure in her own way is a nice person. I don't know her. <laughs> I don't know her. We're not related. We disagree on plenty of things. I don't read her books. Right. So. Right. I think, look, look, without naming, I think some people are here for the show. Some people are here for the after party. Yeah. You know, and that's, that's just kind of the way I look at these things. Um, I know at the end of the day, bro, it, th- there's a lot of work to be done. Yeah. But the, the first thing that has to happen is people have to be serious. So I like serious right. conversations. Uh, and like I said, I felt your performance was nothing less than I told you dazzling. So no, I appreciate th- it, man. So, so there you go, bro. I'll try to get the issues right next time too. Ah! <laughs> <laughs> I'm with it, man. All right, yeah. man. We know of new methods of attack. Trojan Hawk.